ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, an absolutely packed show. I want to thank Goldman Sachs Asset Management, one of our sponsors this week. Joining me will be Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And I've got to tell you, we have some smoking hot topics to get to, starting with a Senate Finance Committee proposal from last Friday to eliminate the magic behind ETF tax efficiency. I had a feeling this would come up at some point. Uh, we now have a formal proposal on the table. And while the initial reaction seems like this doesn't really stand a chance, this is clearly important to ETFs. And so we'll hear from Dave on exactly what's going on here. Dave and I will also discuss this little uh, Twitter dust up we had with Grayscale last week, which I totally blame Dave for that. Uh, he poked the bear. And so I'm going to have him expand on uh, the comments he made regarding futures-based Bitcoin ETFs and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And then I've also solicited uh, some Twitter questions for Dave as well. So we'll get to as many of those as we can. Also joining me this week will be Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, who currently offers five ETFs, over $1.5 billion invested, including several commodity-focused ETFs. They have a uh, physical gold ETF, a platinum ETF, and a broad-based commodities ETF. And we're going to cover two topics that have actually been front of mind for me this year, which are, number one, what's wrong with gold? I mean, you look at gold's performance, it's literally flat over the past 10 plus years, flat. And I do wonder what impact crypto is having here. And then the other topic is broad-based commodities, which this topic has gotten a, a ton of run this year. I think the thought is simply that inflation is picking up and commodities can be a good place to hide out or hedge. And so I'm very curious to hear Will's thoughts on both of these. And if we have time, I may touch on the Granite Shares X out U.S. large cap ETF as well. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by a new ETF entrant, Kai Wu, founder and chief investment officer of Sparkline Capital. He's going to break down the Sparkline Intangible Value ETF. Uh, in a nutshell, I think Kai would tell you that value investing isn't dead it's just changed, that the old way of measuring the intrinsic value of companies, that doesn't work anymore, which is why value has massively underperformed over the past decade plus. But Kai believes there is a way to better capture the true value of companies, a way that includes intangible value. So we'll discuss that and drill into his ETF, which is actively managed. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, thanks for joining me this week. Oh, so much to talk about. Big week, big week. Yes, a lot for us to discuss. 
Let's start with this uh, proposal put forth last Friday by the Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden uh, to, quote, close loopholes that allow wealthy investors and mega corporations to use pass-through entities, primarily partnerships, to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. And if you look, buried within his uh, 11-page summary was this language around eliminating the in-kind redemption tax deferral of ETFs. Now, I saw that you tweeted out this is likely uh, dead on arrival, and we can certainly talk about that. But I first want you to explain what is going on here. What exactly would this mean for ETFs if this proposal gained traction? Sure. So uh, the super short version of this is one of the reasons or the reason ETFs get to defer taxes, meaning you only pay when you as an individual sell, is because through the creation redemption mechanism, they're constantly pushing out low basis securities, the ones you owe a lot of taxes on, to the authorized participant community. And that lets them constantly be resetting the average basis of any position higher and higher and higher. What that actually means in practice is when it comes time to make a capital gains distribution, most ETFs don't actually have any capital gains sitting on their books to distribute because their basis keeps going up and up and up. It's not a tax dodge because as an individual investor, you're still going to pay the full capital gains of something you bought at 100 and sold at 200. Um, But you're just going to pay it when you choose to sell it at some point in the future not when it just gets handed to you as a rebalance, thus jumping up your cost basis and causing all the headaches we know you get with mutual funds and stepped up cost basis every time you get a distribution. It's a pain in the neck. A lot of advisors and tax accountants hate it because if you have a big, complicated portfolio of mutual funds, you're just constantly managing this cost basis problem every time there's a quarterly distribution. ETFs got rid of all of that, which is wonderful. Um, And the proposal from Wyden is to get rid of that ability to push out those low basis shares and and effectively raise that basis. Um, And, you know, I I get where it's coming from. There's an idea that, well, this would recapture revenue in current years at the expense, obviously, of recapture of, of revenue in future years. So it sounds like one of these easy wins at the cost of the capital class. The problem is the folks who actually get the most benefit out of this aren't you know, giant fat cat investors who already have family trust. It's the average guy you put 10 grand away and spy. Why do you think this is coming up now? Obviously, ETFs have been around for almost 30 years. What do you think the driving factor is for, for this coming into a proposal at this point in time? You know, I think there are a couple things. One is the ETF industry is now so big. Uh, you know, we're, we're rounding seven trillion here. That's a pretty big number. Uh, and it's hard to see a number like seven trillion and not immediately assume, well, this is millionaire money, right? Because it's a big freaking number. I get it. Um, and so it looks like an easy place to go raise revenue, uh, sort of a stealth tax, if you will, um, in, in a way that sort of fits a tax the rich narrative. And, and I want to be clear, you know, I'm, I'm very left to center. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. I'm all about, you know, progressive taxation. This is actually a remarkably regressive proposal in the sense that it's actually going to hit folks deeply in the middle class who are trying to figure out a way to save something. ETFs have really been the the cause celeb for them. Okay, so why do you think this proposal is likely dead on arrival? Well, so, you know, the good news is partly because it's so big, there are real economic impacts here. And so I'm and this is an assumption. I'm assuming that to do this, we would actually go through a a, a process of looking at this regulation and requesting comments and doing an OMB budget analysis. That's usually what happens when you make these sort of changes in how taxes work. Um, We haven't done any of that. I I suspect when you go through that process, you will end up with a much smaller number than the $23 billion in revenue that Bloomberg suggested you might raise when they did an article on this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I think that was the 2018 or 2019 tax year. They sort of made some sort of estimate on the top 400 uh, U.S. ETFs about what they might have kicked off in, in capital gains and thus what would have been collected in capital gains taxes. I think it's very difficult to to legitimately do that analysis, but I I think it has to be done if you're going to change the rules of the game for so many investors. So because of that, I think there will be a lot of pushback here from places like the AARP, uh, you know, and individual investor communities 
and I, I think there'll be a lot of pushback from surprising places on this because ETFs have really been an, a great tool for the middle class to generate wealth. And I think this will be deeply unpopular. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the fact is the tax benefits of ETFs apply to all investors. And there's no question, look, we have some significant issues with wealth inequality in this country, and there are things that need to be done to rectify that. And certainly you look at the uh, the government debt situation, you get the desire to raise revenue. Uh, however, this just seems like a, you know, an odd place to look and, and a place yeah. to look where it's not really going to move the needle a whole lot. Let me ask you this. Even if this proposal is dead, now that this topic has come up, do you think this is just the beginning of the fight for the uh, or, or the fight uh, against the ETF industry? Like, are we going to start hearing more of this out of Congress? I, I would hope. I mean, look, if we end up having a bunch of hearings about exchange traded funds, I'm actually all for that. I would like our Congress critters down inside the beltway to understand this industry. I would welcome the opportunity to go explain it to any staffer in any senator or representative's office. Right. I think knowledge is good in this case. So, hey, put the eye of Sauron on ETFs. I'll stand there all day long. I think we're the most democratic the, the most egalitarian version of investing that has really ever been invented. I actually think it's more important than the 401k in terms of what it really allows investors to do. Um, so I, I think that that's good. I don't actually think long term this is a real threat. The, the ETF structure has been successful because it makes sense, not because it's some sort of crazy, nefarious tax dodge. There are plenty of those to go after. Let's go after carried interest. Let's go, out, let's go after pass-through corporations. There's lots of other much lower hanging fruit that is genuinely abused by people with significant means. Well, and I'll just hammer home your point and we can move on here. But the thing that kills me is you look at the research that was cited in this Wyden proposal. It's a piece from uh, Jeffrey Cole titled, quote, the great ETF tax swindle. And there's this reference to how there's an unfair tax subsidy for ETFs, and they encourage the transfer capital uh, from other kinds of investment vehicles, and how ETFs unfairly benefit high net worth investors. And I'm just thinking to myself, ETFs actually do things the fair way, right? I mean, investors pay taxes when they sell. Yeah, that that colon piece um, is one of those classic cases of somebody reading the letter of the regulation correctly and completely inverting the implications, right? Like he doesn't actually follow the map through to what does the evidence show us about who owns ETFs, where they're owned, how they're traded, how they're used. Uh, It's just false on the face of it. And look, I, I think we also need to be careful not to fan the flames of some sort of outrage fire here even if this passed, like even if this somehow slid into the reconciliation package and three weeks from now, we're talking about scrambling to figure out what this means for 2022 and, you know, do your 2021 taxes change and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that would be a pain in the neck. But the net end result, I don't think would be as dramatic as people might suggest. It's not going to kill the ETF industry. It simply put would simply put ETFs on exactly the same bad tax status as mutual funds, which is very tax unfair. It burdens small investors that buy and hold at the expense of high frequency, you know, in and out traders in the funds. There's all sorts of reasons why it, it makes no sense at all. But even then, I don't think it kills the ETF industry because the transparency, the liquidity, the fungibility, like all of these things are enormous benefits to all investors, even if you take away the tax treatment. Yeah, maybe one of the biggest beneficiaries would be direct indexing or custom indexing, which, by the way, for listeners, uh, Dave wrote a fantastic piece covering this entire topic. It's titled ETF Taxation in the Crosshairs. Uh, I know that you alluded to the fact that uh, direct indexing could be a beneficiary here. Okay. Yeah, for sure. The, the other topic we have to cover before we get to uh, Twitter questions was this back and forth you and I had on Twitter regarding the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And it's funny. So Grayscale ended up inviting us to do this uh, Twitter spaces, which you couldn't make that. So I had a lot more time to talk. I, I caught the last 10 minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I was unfortunately booked at the time you guys started it. it. It was fun. But, you know, this all came about because I tweeted some comments Grayscale CEO Michael Sunshine made about how the SEC approving uh, futures-based Bitcoin ETFs before a physical ETF, that could potentially harm GBTC investors. And I think Michael, uh, you know, is expecting that a futures-based ETF would siphon demand away from GBTC and cause it to trade at a discount. 
You poked the bear a little bit here. You basically said, hey, look, this is competition. Uh, stop the whining. And I, I thought since you couldn't do this Twitter spaces, I'd love for you to just expand on this a bit. Like, like what tweaked you about Michael's comments? So uh, there was a level of um, I, I, and I and look, I have to say, I think Grayscale has done some great stuff. I'm actually a big fans of all of the individuals involved. I think they're great guys uh, and gals. Um, however, the structure that these folks and Bitwise and some of the other competitors are using this sort of uh, sort of pink sheet trust, as I tend to call it, these OTC traded you know, sometimes SEC registered, sometimes not SEC reporting trust. Most of the Grayscale ones are now SEC reporting. So, you know, there's a little bit more than just penny stock stuff going on here. It's broken by design, right? This is effectively taking a closed structure and trying to make it behave like an ETF, which means you are at the whim, not just of the premiums and discounts based on the market wanting to be in or out, but based on the flows coming from the creations, which then have to be lagged. And then those shares become available to trade, which can then further suppress prices. There are, there are all sorts of reasons why this is a terrible structure for trying to track an underlying asset. And they knew that when they built this thing. And I get that they would have rather launched an ETF, but they built this thing knowing every one of those deficiencies. To now then say, but, but, but if you let people trade a futures ETF, which will be inferior to just owning spot, I'm not defending the futures ETF, but to say that allowing that product to exist will cause harm to our specific shareholders and therefore the SEC should not do it is a level of entitlement I have not seen in quite some time. I get that he is trying to be a fiduciary and defend his clients, but the problem is in the structure he built, not in the fact that a futures-based ETF might exist. Futures-based ETFs exist on all sorts of stuff, and if you're going to let people trade Bitcoin futures, there's absolutely no reason to not let them roll it up into an ETF. You can buy a gold futures ETF. It's a terrible idea, but you can buy it. I think all of what you said makes perfect sense. I'll just, again, hammer home two points here. One, I don't believe the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust either would exist or certainly not have the assets in it had the SEC approved a Bitcoin ETF a while back. So I, I think we oh, all God, would agree yeah. with that. Of course. Right. And, yeah. and to something that you hit on, Grayscale has a duty to their shareholders. And so if the CEO wants to come out and publicly put some pressure on the SEC in an effort to protect their shareholders. I guess I don't see anything wrong with that. I guess a question I would have for you is, do you think it's a wise decision for um, really anybody involved in crypto? Like we saw uh, Brian uh, Armstrong at Coinbase come out and was pretty, I would say, inflammatory towards the uh, SEC. Is it smart to, you know, quote unquote, dunk on your regulator or is that a a no-no? In general, it doesn't work. I'll put that, you know, historically, <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Um, they generally don't like to get yelled at in public. Um, so, so I'm not a big fan of sort of taking up the public soapbox to make your point. Um, that's what staff meetings in Washington are for. And there's a process for that. Uh, and I'm 100% sure they're going through that process as well. So it all strikes me a little bit as venting and positioning. Um, none of these things needed to be done publicly. They all would have been better done privately, and I'm sure probably were done privately as well. So you have to you have to take these sort of public Twitter displays of outrage for what they are, performative. Um, and because of that, I have a little bit of a, a hard time stomaching them because it's not that they're ingenuine arguments. They're, I understand why they're making the arguments, but they're sort of missing the point. I think it just shows a level of frustration. And quite honestly, it's a frustration that I've had that if you look at the products that do currently exist, GBTC certainly being one, but you look at the fact that we now have futures-based mutual funds. I keep saying, who wants futures uh, in a mutual fund structure of all things? We have MicroStrategy levering up on uh, to get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, you know, you, you just look at the options available to investors and it's frustrating because we know we have a good mousetrap, something that would work perfectly in, in a transparent ETF wrapper. And oh, I think yeah. it's just that I'm not frustration. And I'm not defending the yeah. SEC here, right? I think the right. SEC is taking a deeply wrong turn on crypto right now. Gunsler's made it very clear how they're going to push forward here. Uh, and I'm not a fan. Okay, so this leads perfectly into a Twitter question we, uh, we received. And again, thank you to everyone who's, who submitted these. And Dave, you and I can just try to go rapid fire here. It's so funny. We always run short on time. But I like that uh, because we could talk about this stuff all day long. So our good friend Eric Balchunas over at Bloomberg, he made another bet with CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth. <laughs> this is bet God, number three. Steak dinners. Yeah, so Eric <laughs> is 2-0. and oh. uh, Todd needs to get on the board here. 
But Eric thinks the SEC will approve Bitcoin futures ETFs in 2021. Todd says 2022, loser buys a steak dinner. Who wins? Eric wants to know what your prediction is. Uh, you know, I think it's very much an edge case. Uh, I don't think this is a slam dunk. But, you know, if I was if I had to go, you know, over under on this, I would probably be on the side that we'll see an approval inside this year. But boy, I don't have a lot of conviction on that. Um, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on that. I'd put a dinner on it because I'd like to have dinner with any of you guys. But uh, <laughs> but I, I know I would be on the side of this year. If, but if you're asking me on a physical, you know, GLD for Bitcoin, I'm not actually sure I think it's ever going to happen at this point. Wow, pretty strong uh, statement. I agree with you on the futures-based ETFs. I'm certainly leaning towards 2021. If I have to put money on it, that's where I'd go. Okay, next Twitter question comes from at Daily Beat, and I, I like this one. He's just asking for your thoughts on REIT ETFs, so your overall views on the REIT landscape as far as portfolio allocation, uh, as well as commenting on various active and passive and thematic REIT ETFs out there. And he correctly points out, you know, there are a ton of options available to investors here. I'll just add that if you look at broad REIT ETFs, so something like VNQ, the Vanguard REIT ETF, that's had a great year. It's up yeah. nearly 30%, which I think might surprise some people who thought commercial real estate in particular was dead. So I'll just ask you, it's a big question there, but you know, if you were to summarize, what do you think about REITs and, and REIT ETFs right now? Um, I'm so I have very nuanced thoughts on this. I'm not a big fan of of either healthcare or uh, commercial REITs right now, in particular, because I think that we are in the middle of the rebuilding of that infrastructure. We are not at the end, meaning we don't know, we don't really know what the commercial real estate market is going to look like. We don't really know what the healthcare real estate market is going to look like. Those have been hot areas for a lot of folks I know. Um, I think there are far too many unknowns, and I think that there's a huge difference between a commercial office building in uh, Chicago and New York and L.A. or anywhere else. So I, I think it's difficult to just slap an index on those things and, and really know what you're getting. Um, as an asset class, re real estate is one of those things where we're wedging what are fundamentally illiquid properties or illiquid assets into a liquid security. Now, look, the REIT market works great. It's been working great for a very long time. I'm not suggesting there's a structural issue, but I do think you end up with some unintended consequences in terms of the exposures. The folks that I think are doing the best work in real estate, frankly, are doing it privately. They're either doing it with you know private pools uh, that are being actively managed sort of through hedge fund structures, or they're doing this one at a time, buying rental properties themselves or pooling with family members to buy rental properties and sort of generate that passive income, which is often what you're really trying to get out of your real estate investment. So I understand the interest in it, the inflation rate sensitivity, all that kind of stuff. Not a huge fan of REITs overall and not a really big fan of the sort of over-indexing of them as an asset class. I think all that makes sense. And I would agree. There are just so many unknowns here. I think on the positive side, obviously, we still have low interest rates, which is supportive for REITs. I think if you look at the REITs, their you know, balance sheets are pretty healthy overall. There's cash there. And these bounced earlier this year on the uh, economic reopening play. But who knows what that's going to look like moving forward. And I, I will say commercial real estate in particular, for me, it's just so tough to come up with a good investment thesis there when you think about this work from home movement. Yeah. And I know that's well-trodden territory, but uh, boy, I mean, you know, what, what's the upside there if you have companies yeah. really, really moving to uh, work from home? Yeah, and I think that it, this is one of those things where, you know, I know a few folks in this business that like work for folks that are building REITs and things like that. There's just a big difference between property A and property B, right? Property A may be doomed because it was rented to one giant company who's never coming back. So the lease is going to get reset and it's just going to be a dead property for a number of years while they recarve it. And then there's a property down the street where, you know, they made transitions very early towards you know, more generic working spaces or, they, you know, they're reconverting certain floors to residential or you name it, right? The properties are very unique. They are not monolithic. All right. A few more questions here. Let's go with this one from uh, Graham Sinclair at ESG Architect, which that's an underrated Twitter handle. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it's solid. Uh, but his question ties into the conversation you and I had last week on this filing from ARC on a uh, transparency ETF. And Graham simply wants to know, how big do you think this ETF can be in one year and in 10 years? And, and obviously, this is a shot in the dark, but what would you say? Uh, I, you know, I think 
five to eight hundred million in the first twelve months wouldn't blow me away. Uh, that's based probably more on the brand of Arc than uh, you know people flocking to the investment thesis. However, I also think that the investment thesis is relatively sound. Um, it, you know, I I think that it's not inconce- inconceivable in ten years this is a multi billion dollar fund that people are using to express a particular version. Of ESG, I, I think it's a mis- misnomer to call it really an ESG fund. I think it's a thematic fund where, in this case, the theme is transparency, and I think that's an intriguing theme. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the ARC Space and Innovation ETF ARKX, that pretty quickly got to whatever 600, 650 million. That's probably a good proxy for what the uh, transparency mm-hmm. ETF could do initially, and then it's just going to take performance and and some other factors and from it, there. And it'll be a slow grind because this isn't a headline fund, right? So the space fund, you know, you can imagine three or four headlines in three or four months, and all of a sudden that's a five billion dollar fund. Everybody wants to be there. You can, I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but I can I can imagine the news flow that drives that. You're not going to get that on something like transparency or any other ESG type of factor. All right. Another ESG related question comes from uh, at Raiden Jake, who I've actually had him on the podcast before. It was great. Um, he wants to know what you think the direction of proxy voting in ETFs will be, especially the biggest passive funds. Will we see a break with tradition of just always voting with management and sometimes against shareholders will? Is this somewhere funds will start to compete? And I'll just add, we're actually starting to see that a little bit now, right, with something like the uh, engine number one Transform 500 ETF, yeah, ticker vote. The but yeah. the, the question, I mean, do you think larger funds will, will follow suit or get, or get more active here? I, I think people don't understand how much this is already happening. If you go, like, pick the biggest player, BlackRock, go to their website, go to their shareholder voting center, which they have, you, will re- you can find multi-page documents on every major proxy vote that BlackRock made. Dozens, if not hundreds, of these PDFs saying what they voted, why they voted that way. And it is 100% not a rubber stamp with management. They are, you may disagree with what they decide, but these are thoughtful analyses of the shareholder impact of all of the major proposals and all of the major large holdings where BlackRock has, you know, punching way above, you know, the way people think they do in terms of their voting power. And they're not rubber stamping for management. They just aren't. I understand that is the common narrative. But if you bother to go read any of the documents, quite often they are being vigorous in their defense of a position against management in some cases. Um, and I think what what Vote is doing and what, Engine, the, the, what, what they're doing with that fund is brilliant for two reasons, not just because they're taking voting seriously, but they're also going out to their competitors, to other index, you know, index-based funds, and trying to get them on board on specific proxy issues of note. Um, I think that's great. Now, I know other people think that that's collusion or whatever. I, there's, there's issues with that, but that's where we're headed. And I think that's great because I think investors should be voting on which one of their S&P funds they're going to be in based on how they think those things are going to get voted. What other difference is there between IVV and BOO than how it votes? There's really not much. Well, and to me, I think one of the biggest keys here is actually technology, which is something you've talked a lot about in that allowing in investors to, in an automated fashion, and put in their ESG preferences or, or, or how they want to yeah. vote, which then the larger fund companies, they could, you know, cumulatively take those votes and then, you know, theoretically vote along with their shareholders. We'll see if that problem gets solved. But I think the technology is the real key here versus, you know, all these paper proxies that get mailed to investors that get tossed in the trash can. There's just got to be a better way. Yeah, it's totally solvable with software. All right. uh, Last question. And I would say this is more of a technical ETF question, but I always love these just from an educational perspective. It comes from uh, at Kleiman BHC. He asks, all things being equal, if the short interest in an ETF grows, what is that? uh, Or yeah, what does that mean? The short interest in the underlying stocks has to grow as well. So so do you just want to explain what happens when an ETF is shorted? Does that impact the underlying at all? So generally not. And, and when it does, it's probably in exactly the opposite way you think it does. So if you take, like, just pick a name above the title ETF, like ARKK, obviously lots of folks wanted to short that because Kathy Wood had her moment in the sun. And so you know, a lot of people were very negative. So people wanted to short ARKK. So think about the mechanics. I want to short ARKK. I go to my interactive broker's account. I get, I get a borrow. Um, so there's somebody out there in interactive brokers who owns ARKK, who's willing to loan it to me to then go sell again. So if I do that enough, if enough people are doing that, 
you run out of inventory, right? There's no longer anything left to borrow to go do this sell, this short that I want to do. So what happens? The market makers go make more ARKK so that they can then lend it out. It's called create to lend. And it happens pretty commonly when you get an ETF that is just all of a sudden on everybody's short list. We saw this, for instance, with solar energy, TAN, got super heavily shorted a few years ago, like massively shorted. And what you saw was those underlying stocks actually got purchased because there were all these market makers doing create to lend, make more shares of TAN, make more shares of ARKK so that I can lend them out because they were making several percent a year annualized just lending out those shares with no basis risk. That's a pretty good deal. Um, so honestly, what ends up happening in ETFs is, is often an oxymoron, which is the more shorted it gets, the more expensive it is to borrow, the more create to lend you get, the more assets go into that fund, the more those underlying stocks get bid up. Now, often there's a reason people are sour on a particular fund or a segment. So it's certainly possible, like in the solar case, a lot of folks were short those solar stocks too, but it does have this weird sort of oxymoron quality to it. Dave, nobody answers questions like that better than you do. Fantastic uh, answer. <laughs> this is always fun. I, I just love bouncing around on these different topics with you. Thank you for joining me this week. Oh, man, anytime. Good to be here. That was Dave Nodig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The nationwide risk management income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. My next guest is Will Rhine, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, who currently offers five ETFs, over $1.5 billion invested, including the Granite Shares Gold Trust, ticker BAR. They also offer a broad commodity strategy ETF, ticker COMB, C-O-M-B, and we'll be discussing both of those this week. Uh, Will is now on the line with me from New York. Will, welcome back. It's uh, been a little while. It has, but good to be back. Good to talk with you, Nate. All right. So, look, I am going to jump right in this week. What in the world is wrong with gold? Because we still have, <laughs> you know, we still have historically low interest rates. So I would say the opportunity cost of owning gold is low. We still have an accommodative Fed, uh, government stimulus. There are now growing concerns over inflation. The list of things that would seemingly be positive for gold is fairly lengthy, but you, you look, gold's down about 6% this year. What is going on here? So what's going on? Absolutely nothing is going on. And what I mean by that is for gold to go materially higher than it is today, we need a catalyst. And that catalyst has to be, in my mind, one of two things. It has to be Fear, like it was last year. In other words, the crisis hedge element to it and fear driving gold to an all-time high or inflation. And right now, we don't have enough of two of those, those, those things you know, to drive gold forward. I mean, certainly if you think about fear, there's no fear in the market right now. We have a stock market that's you know, at or near all-time highs in terms of valuations. We've got record issuance of money-losing IPOs, of, you know, SPACs, of, you know, record margin debt levels. Uh, we've got cryptocurrencies. We've got NFTs. You know, I could go on. Um, but the point is, at the moment, the Fed narrative is that inflation is transitory, i.e. it's not a problem. And right now, uh, the market believes that, and therefore, there is no or inflationary catalyst to buy gold. Well, let me ask you this, because if you look at the 
trailing 10 years, gold is about flat, right? That's over the past 10 years. Now, you know, anybody can cherry pick the dates. Uh, but if you look since mid-August 2018, gold is up over 50%. But again, flat over the trailing 10 years. And you, you mentioned these two potential catalysts in terms of fear or, or a crisis hedge and then inflation. Obviously, inflation hasn't been a big concern over the past 10 years, but there have been times of, of fear. I mean, do you think those two things are enough to result in more of a prolonged up move here? Yeah, I mean, look, gold, gold, it's just an asset like anything else. At the end of the day, the price of gold goes up and it goes down. So over that 10-year period you're talking about, um, obviously there was a period in 2011 where gold prices went to what was then an all-time high. And that was on the back of, remember at the time, that was money printing uh, that happened after the financial crisis and similar concerns that we had today. But the culmination of that, which actually ironically is potentially you know just around the corner here as well in 2021 was that what happened was there was a technical default you know on the united states debt remember mm-hmm. um and that was the result of the debt ceiling not being raised uh, which resulted in the first ever downgrade of united states AAA credit rating which that you know plus all the other things going propelled gold to an all-time high um and so yes the price did come down after that and then dropped you know pretty pretty savagely in, in 2013, um, along with a lot of other commodities. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the price went up to an all-time high again last year, as everybody knows. And I think you know, when gold does that, there has to be a reason beyond just your standard asset allocation. Because those that, those that like gold, those that believe in gold, those that know the value of gold, they're already in the market. They're already invested. Gold is already part of their portfolio. It may not be overweight. They might not have as much gold as they as they perhaps would uh, in that sort of in those kind of scenarios. But they already own it. What we need is the tourists, you know, to come into this market. And so those are the people that don't own any gold today, um, but they're going to buy out of. There has to be a motivation for them to buy. And I, I posit that those motivations right now would be fear or the inflation, which obviously is in itself a function of fear as well. On the note of those tourists, do you think Bitcoin and crypto are impacting gold at all? Like like the tourists have gravitated there. I, I tweeted this out last week. If you look at uh, the numbers, again, over the, the trailing 10 years, gold is flat. The price of Bitcoin has gone from $7 to around 44000 uh, So do you think there's any relationship here? Like is Bitcoin negatively impacting gold or do you think it's otherwise changed investor behavior around gold? I think perhaps at the margin, it's very early to tell. I mean, I think the the only thing you can really say is big Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is a hugely speculative asset class, and so that's a that's a space where you've got a lot of capital that's gone into it because of the sort of volatility and the returns um, that you're talking about. So people are able to make and lose a lot of money very quickly, um, and for for some people, you know, the thrill of that speculation. Um, is what's driving them into it. So gold, you don't have any speculation. There's no feverish speculation in gold right now. But we're talking about, we started this call by saying, you know, why isn't gold you know, materially higher? Um, and so cryptocurrencies, you know, maybe, maybe some of that, you know, some of that capital um, that otherwise might have gone into gold has gone into to cryptocurrencies. I think that's certainly possible. But at this stage, I think it's just more symptomatic of the speculative nature of this market. And you have more people that are investing, you know, trading without fear in something like a cryptocurrency versus something like gold. All right, before we move on, because I do want to talk broad commodities, do you want to briefly highlight the Granite Shares Gold Trust, ticker BAR? Uh, Maybe just give a quick compare and contrast with some of the other physical gold ETFs on the market if investors are looking to make an allocation to this space? Yeah, sure. Um, So BAR, or the Granite Shares Gold Trust, um, ticker code is BAR. Um, That is physically backed, meaning that one share of that particular ETF is backed by physical gold that sits in a maximum security vault. And so it simply replicates the spot price of gold, and it does it in a very low-cost way. So it's 17 and a half basis points. That's less than, well, it's over 60% uh, less expensive than the most expensive uh, and most well-known gold ETF in the market, uh, which is the GLD. 
Um, so it's very much a low cost, you know, alternative way for investors to get exposure to gold, but it does it with, you know, direct physical exposure, doesn't lend out the gold um, in the vault. And so therefore, there's no credit risk um, involved. It's just a simple way for people to own gold uh, in a low cost manner in the portfolio. Okay, so let's now pivot to broad commodities. And for some context, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that, you know, this topic has gotten a lot of run this year. And from my perspective, I think the thought is that inflation could be picking up and commodities can be a good place to to potentially hedge here. Now, you offer the Granite Shares Bloomberg Commodity Strategy No K1 ETF, ticker COMB. I, I guess before we talk about the inflation uh, component, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Explain what this ETF holds. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this ETF is, uh, think of it as almost like an S&P 500 of the commodity world. So instead of owning stocks, it owns commodity futures contracts. And it owns 23 commodity futures contracts. Um, We represent every major sector of the commodities market. So that's energy, industrial metals, precious metals, agricultural commodities, livestock, both soft and hard commodities. And really think of it as being a one-stop shop for investing in the direct commodity market. Okay, so unlike gold, COMB is up about 24% this year. And again, my sense is that's primarily been driven by inflation concerns. I guess two questions here. One, do you think that's accurate? And then two, how effective have commodities been as an inflation hedge, if you look historically? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, historically, it's funny. I mean, this goes back to, um, you know, one of the reasons that commodity investing became a thing uh, in the first place. And that was in the very early 2000s, the the inception of these indices, um, or the majority of the indices, certainly the one that we replicate uh, in COMB, um, but also other popular ones really came about in the early 2000s. And they were really as a response to inflation concerns from investors and investors looking for an effective way to hedge inflationary risks in the portfolio. And actually, this came from the the pension fund world or the institutional world, where clearly, if you're running a pension fund, uh, something like inflation is a really big concern. And so what what people found was when they looked at the data, that actually, when you think about CPI or any kind of inflation construct, um, the, the highest correlation typically uh, to be found to that were commodities. And the reason is because the majority of CPI um, is food and energy. And so commodity markets, you know, that's the primary input. You've got energy prices um, through all of your, your oil, your natural gas, other you know, parts of the energy complex. And then you have food with your agricultural products. Um, so really, that's why or how um, commodities became associated with inflation. And obviously, that's really the reason that um, certainly COMB returns have been so good recently is because you've seen an inflation number, majority of inflation has been driven um, by you know, rising energy costs and rising food costs. You began to uh, touch on this a little bit earlier, but do you have any strong views on, on where we're at regarding inflation? Obviously, there's a lot of debate versus transitory or, or something more prolonged here. Any strong views? Um, yeah, we, we do have a strong view on it. I mean, I, I think that inflation is going to stay higher um, for a long time. I think that this is more structural. You know, you've got uh, certainly the supply chain issues that are well documented, um, which, you know, again, could fall into the transitory narrative. But, you know, the global supply chains just don't look as if they're showing any signs of, you know, fixing themselves or those bottlenecks easing up kind of anytime soon. And then, you know, one of the big sort of elephants in the room of inflation, you know, over the last arguably 40 years has been labor. And, you know, there hasn't really been you know, rising uh, labor costs. And now we're seeing rising labor costs all over the place. You know, the, the job numbers um, came out, I think it was last week, you know, that's saying that in the United States, we, we have 11 million, something like that, 11 million open positions and we have only 8 million, we have 8 million unemployed. So there's a big gap in terms of um, the economy and people looking for work um, and you know, positions that need to be filled. So at the moment, to me, it's a supply-demand imbalance that you have help-wanted. So this is the, the help-wanted, you know, in inverted commas, economy. 
Uh, we're seeing inflation in labor costs, we're seeing inflation in energy. You know, everybody that's you know filling up their car at the gas station, the gas prices are, are skyrocketing. Um, we see inflation at the grocery store, the food costs, the restaurants, etc. And so I, I just I look around and I don't really see any evidence that this is something that's a short-term phenomenon. You know, prices obviously rise and fall. So in the, in the supply and demand context, I think what that means is that we'll need, I think, more demand destruction, you know, to bring prices back down. At, at the moment, I don't see that demand destruction because people are, are out there willing to spend money or wanting to spend money, you know, after being, you know, locked down and locked up for a long time. And so I think that this um, you're going to see elevated levels of, of inflation for, for some time. And well, I think I know the answer to this, but for investors considering an allocation here, do you view broad commodities as a longer term uh, strategic holding in a portfolio or are they something that investors need to be more tactical with? Well, it depends, Nate, on what your objective is, obviously, because um, there are a number of different ways. I mean, I, I guess the two the two most popular ways to think about commodity investing, if I had to sum it up, would be number one, inflation, as we talked about. So how to hedge inflation in the portfolio. And again, inflation, depending on your view, that could be a shorter term thing or it could be a longer term thing. The other one, probably the more popular one, is certainly you know over the last 20 years has been commodities as a diversification tool in the portfolio, meaning that because commodity returns have historically had a low correlation to stocks and bonds, that they work well as diversifier in the portfolio. So you'll find a lot of you know, the more academically minded you know, portfolio managers holding a percentage of commodities in the portfolio just because of that fact, because it works well as a different return stream to what you get with equities and bonds. That would be an example in my mind of certainly a longer term you know, strategic holding, which regardless of whether commodity prices are rising or falling, you hold that in the portfolio. And something like, you know, short-term price moves, uh, potentially inflation, et cetera, could be more tactical. Will, about two minutes left here. I did want to quickly ask you about the Granite Shares XOUT U.S. large cap ETF, ticker XOUT. You launched this back in October 2019. I checked yesterday. This has fairly meaningfully outperformed the S&P 500. I'm showing by about 11, 12 points total since that time. Uh, just briefly here, do you want to talk about that ETF? Sure. So this is a, a unique concept um, that we launched, like you said, the back end of, of 2019. It was really a, an answer, I suppose, to, to one of the most obvious flaws in passive investing, um, which, you know, as obviously... People have worked in the passing investing world for a long time, you know, we're well familiar with, and that's that there's something there's something ideologically concerning um, with the idea that you buy the market, buy every stock in the market, regardless of whether it's good or bad. And that's sort of the central premise. And the idea, therefore, is, well, what what is instead of trying to pick the winner? So instead of trying to identify the next Google or the next Amazon, which we know is incredibly difficult, and that's why the majority of active managers underperform. What, what if it's easier to identify who the losers are and actually just eliminate those? And do you end up with a portfolio that therefore can outperform, not because you pick the winners, but because you've excluded the losers? And so the, the process of Xing out the losers is the fundamental philosophy that underpins the X out ETF. And so really by taking what we do is we start with the, the universe of the 500 largest stocks in the U.S. market by market cap. We score each one of those companies and we use seven fundamental metrics. And so it's a it's a quantumental strategy, if you will. And then we exclude 250 with the lowest scores. And so that's actually a sizable obviously, amount of market that gets excluded and therefore the stocks that remain, you know, that's how the portfolio generates the performance. It's a quarterly rebalance, so it's synced, you know, over earnings season. So we we score every quarter, and it's dynamic. So that means that if a company gets eliminated this quarter um, because its score is not very good, then if that company was to turn itself around and the score improved over time, then that company could be included or re re um, admitted to the portfolio at some point in future. 
Well, and again, the strategy is working thus far. Uh, again, besting the S&P 500 by about 11, 12 uh, points since you launched in, uh, in late 2019. Will, always enjoy connecting. Excellent perspective as always. Let's see if we can get gold to finally turn around once and for all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. That was Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares. I'm now joined by Kai Wu, founder and chief investment officer of Sparkline Capital, who at the end of June, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Sparkline Intangible Value ETF. The ticker symbol is ITAN, I-T-A-N. And Kai is now on the line with me from New York. Kai, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Nate. Okay, so look, you are a new ETF entrant uh, I guess first, tell us a little bit about your background and Sparkline Capital and how you came to launch an ETF. Sure. So let's see. Um, I got my start at GMO working for Jeremy Grantham and Ben Inker. Um, it was a great learning experience and really set the foundation for many of the ideas and challenges that I'm tackling today. Um, after that, I left to co-found a quantitative hedge fund with another guy from GMO. We manage money exclusively for large, multi-billion-dollar endowments and foundations, and we ran some esoteric options and future strategies. The business was successful, and you know we launched a couple funds and grew up to a few hundred million. Then, a few years ago, I decided to sell my stake and left to start Sparkline Cap. Look, I believe that the investment industry is in the midst of a sea change. The exponential growth of machine learning, computing, and data creation will change the way people invest and I wanted to contribute to the revolution. So I guess the final part of the story is the launch, launch of the Sparkline Intangible Value ETF. I am a strong believer in the ideas of innovation and openness, and as a result, I decided to make my research on the intangible economy freely available to the public on my website. And you know, over the past year, this has garnered a lot of interest, and I've had folks ask, how can I get exposure to some of these ideas? I did some research and ultimately decided that the ETF structure was the perfect expression of these ideals. You know, ETFs provide full portfolio transparency and democratize access. Unlike hedge funds, anyone with a brokerage account can go buy ICANN. Okay, so before we get to the details of the ETF itself, I thought the best place to start was to actually discuss this concept of intangible value, what it is, why it's become more important, how to quantify it. So let, let's start there. Do you first want to define intangible value? What is it? So intangible value is simply value that is not physical in nature. So it's not factories, not capital equipment, not financial assets. Um, at Sparkline, we define four pillars of intangible assets that we think are the most important. First is intellectual property, then brand equity, human capital, and network effects. And what we found is that these assets are becoming increasingly important in the modern economy. We estimate they now comprise 50 to 60% of the capital stock of U.S. companies and are even more important for the growing knowledge economy sectors, such as software, and biotech, and media. And, you know, we like the, this quote by Warren Buffett. He said, the four largest companies today by market value do not need any net tangible assets. They're not like AT&T, GM, or ExxonMobil requiring lots of capital to produce earnings. We have become an asset-light economy. So intangible value is the dominant form of value in the modern economy now that we have become asset-light. Kai, as I thought about our, our conversation today, you know, many investors know this narrative of value underperforming growth over the past decade or so. I ran the numbers yesterday. So over the trailing 10 years, Russell 1000 growth has returned over 500% versus about 250% for Russell 1000 value. I mean, we're talking massive underperformance. Frame that for us as it pertains to intangible value, because my understanding is you would say 
value investing isn't dead, it's just changed. That's exactly right. So look, yeah, that massive gap, 50% drawdown of value relative to growth is something I've obviously thought a lot about, especially given the timing of when I started out in the business and my, you know, my start at GMO. Look, as you say, I do not believe that value investing is dead. The principles of value investing are timeless. The idea of buying companies below intrinsic value is just by definition a great idea. The problem, as I see it, is that the metrics for intrinsic value need to be updated. So remember that value investing originated with Ben Graham in the 1930s. And the 1930s were an industrial era, the dominant firms, railroads and steel mills. And security analysis was simply finding companies trading below net liquidation value. And so traditional tangible value metrics like price to book ratio, which is what underpins the Russell 1000 value index you mentioned, worked well. But, you know, over the past century, the economy has transformed massively. Firm value is no longer physical. It's intangible. It's embodied by the four pillars I described before, intellectual property, brand equity, human capital, network effects. And the most important companies today cannot be analyzed without reference to their intangible assets. You know, if you're running a value strategy that does not give credit to firms like Google or NVIDIA for their intangibles, you're always going to be underweight or short. And... So I've done research on this, and what I found is that value strategies, their emission of intangible assets, largely explains their distant performance over the past 10 to 15 years. But on a brighter note, I also found that if you augment this tangible value metric with metrics of intangible value, um, we have the potential to greatly boost the performance of value strategies and you know, kind of uh, correct for some of the underperformance we've seen recently. Okay, so as you go through that, all of that makes sense. But I guess from my perspective, the big challenge here is quantifying intangible value. And I know that's a problem uh, you're attempting to solve. Talk about how you're doing that. How do you quantify intangibles? Right. No, you're, you're completely right. The quantification of intangible assets is you know, easier said than done. And in fact, is the reason that why most folks have not gone down the path of trying to measure these things. You know, I, I like to call intangible assets the dark matter of finance because it holds together the financial universe, but it can't really be observed with a naked eye, or at least with traditional tools. And the main challenge, uh, to be precise, is that standard financial statements, they largely ignore intangible assets. For example, the only human capital disclosure in the U.S. is company headcount. So investors, if they want to quantify intangibles, they need to be creative. They need to identify potentially useful non-accounting data sources. Some, ex some examples might include patent abstracts, company reviews, resumes, job listings. And I'll admit, look, this is no easy task. First of all, we have to scour the internet for sources of information that might be helpful to determine intangible value. Second, these data sets, even once we get them, tend to consist mainly of large, unstructured textual data, which are not going to be amenable to statistical analyses like regression. We happen to be fortunate, though, and, you know, I mentioned kind of this revolution in, in data and computing, but we're in the midst of exponential innovation in machine learning and AI. Um, and what we found at Sparkline is that applying machine learning is a much more effective way of processing this unstructured data. In particular, we use a form of machine learning called natural language processing, or NLP, which is specifically designed to deal with its unstructured text. And so, look, while it's a lot of work, we believe investors don't really have any other choice, given that structured accounting data is largely silent on intangibles. Okay, so now that we have all that backdrop, talk about the ETF, ITAN. Like, how are you applying all of this? Right. So the objective of the fund is um, to invest in the top 1,000 stocks. So that's our investment universe the top 1,000 largest stocks in the U.S., similar to the Russell 1,000 you had mentioned before. And, you know, every day we're collecting data. We have now terabytes of unstructured data from dozens of different sources. And we use our natural language processing to convert this data into useful inputs into this quantitative process. And so our models have five components of value, the four intangible pillars, intellectual property, brand equity, human capital, network effects, and then also the fifth pillar, which is just tangible value. So we combine these five pillars to create a composite value score for every single company. So now we have that. We line up all 1,000 stocks. And then we select only the top 10 to 20%. So that is about 150 different stocks today in the portfolio. 
Uh, and this allows us to focus on the companies that are really cheap compared to their tangible and intangible value while still maintaining the benefits of diversification. And then finally, we don't allocate capital equally. Uh, we, in fact, weight in proportion to both value score and size. So this gives cheaper companies and also larger companies a bit more weight in the portfolio, all else equal. Kai, I thought it'd be helpful for listeners to take a holding or two and, and have you explain their intangible value. Right now, the top five holdings in the ETF are Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Some other top holdings include NVIDIA, Oracle, Cisco, Intel, definitely tech-heavy. Do you want to talk about uh, one or two of these companies in more detail just as it pertains to their intangible value? Sure. Yeah, uh, let's talk about Google for now. Um, so remember, there are five pillars of value if you include tangibles. And so one useful lens I found is to decompose a company's balance sheet into these five different components. So take Google. All right, it has you know, N dollars on its balance sheet. How does that split into these five different areas? So first, I found that tangible value constitutes only about 5%. And this is mainly just cash and securities and you know, maybe some physical assets like servers and office space. But you know, this, the company Google is obviously an asset-like company. Next, we can look at IT. Um, Google is actually one of the top patent holders. Um, and more importantly, it has patent leadership in key technologies such as cloud computing and AI, right? Obviously, a patent on a buggy web is not very useful in this day and age. Um, and then, you know, patents are obviously just one measure of innovation. Google also employs a very large share of technical talent and actually has the most AI research publication, even higher than Stanford and MIT. So we find that overall IP constitutes about 30% of its value. So definitely a brand. Um, Google has historically ranked really high in brand. Um, you know, it's one of the best companies to work for. It's generally considered like a top company. But over the past few years, they've definitely taken a bit of a hit, um, you know, with the backlash against big tech and some of the um, kind of cultural issues they've had. Um, but brand, you know, it constitutes about 10% of its balance sheet. So when you think of search, you think of Google. It's still good, but it's not, you know, the, the biggest form of value. So next we have human capital. Um, you know, the knowledge economy is all about superstar talent. I think it was Google's former head of human capital, Laszlo Bock, um, who said that a top engineer can be 100 times as productive as a median one. And so they have focused very strongly on recruiting and getting the top talent into their firm, and it's paid off. We actually you know, look at LinkedIn data. We track the flow of talent from company to company, and we find that Google is a magnet. It sucks up talent not just from its competitors, from others, but also from other sectors of the economy. And then on the culture front, yes, their ratings have slipped a bit, as we mentioned over the past few years, but look, they're still considered one of the top companies to work for. And so we estimate their human capital is around 30% of their balance sheet. And then finally, network effects. So network effects constitute the remaining 25% of its value. Uh, this is mainly due to the power of Google search, right? Each time a user runs a search, Google is able to then use that data to further improve its algorithms. You know, it's now personalizing its search results. So over the past decade, as you know, given its leadership in the space, Google now has an immense amount of data. And look, the same phenomenon holds for all its other products, you know, Gmail, Maps, what have you. And then there's, of course, the inter-product network effects, right? The integrations mean that, you know, as a user of Google, I almost never have to leave their ecosystem. So look, just to kind of sum things up, Google's an exceptional company um, because of its diverse mix of intangible assets. You have some firms that excel maybe on just one dimension, you know, Coca-Cola in brand, or, you know, I talk about Boeing in, in, in intellectual property. But Google manages to be strong on all the intangible pillars, and that's what make it, makes it such a powerful firm. Kai, just a couple of minutes left. As I rattled off the top five holdings there, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, I can guarantee you there's some listeners who are thinking to themselves well boy that sounds a lot like the S&P 500 do you want to talk about that I mean how similar or dissimilar is the risk return profile of ITAN compared to the S&P right now so it's going to be quite different um, yes the top five holdings are similar but you know, keep in mind that the nut, you know, there's only 150 stocks and you know especially as you go down the list it's going to look quite different um, so from a quantitative standpoint it's going to be quite different and just remember that this is a quant model. Look, I'm building up metrics of intangible value for every public company from a variety of different alternative data sources. 
I'm then aggregating that information into a composite value of uh, for each company against which I'm comparing stock price. So, you know, as you saw with the Google example, you know, it turns out that this is where the model is leading us today. Megacap tech just happens to have a ton of intangible value and does not appear too expensive, at least when compared to this prodigious, prodigious source of value. Um, look, we, we live in a unique time where the scale properties of the internet and software have enabled large companies such as these to generate tremendous profits. You know, while industrial monopolists of the past have run into scale issues, intangibles require you know, upfront fixed costs, but then from there can scale almost infinitely. You know, platform competition is largely winner take all. So once a company establishes itself as a market leader, um, whether the product is search or cloud computing, it's very difficult to unseat. But remember, things can still change. Technology is a fast-moving industry, and the rise of new technologies can lead to the obsolescence of others. And also, valuations matter. If prices were to rise dramatically, these companies will be much less attractive. And so by building balance sheets for every single company, our hope is that we can spot if valuations become excessive as they did in the dot-com bubble. And so, look, that's the advantage of an active strategy, is that we can rotate over time as evaluations or fundamentals change. Yeah, I think as you go through that, my takeaway, you know, the fact that you have the same top five as the S&P, I think tells us something about all of these cries that mega cap tech is overvalued, right? Because that doesn't seem to be where you're landing. And, you know, I think you can't just rely on P.E. ratios because they don't account for the future value of intangible investment, as you've outlined. So that makes sense to me. But, uh, Kai, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations on the launch of ITAN. I certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. That was Kai Wu, founder and chief investment officer of Sparkline Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Orcam Group founder, Colin Roche. He's going to explain his decision to launch the Discipline Fund ETF and outline that ETF's approach. And then Pacer ETF's Sean O'Hara will talk financial markets and offer some key considerations for ETF investors. Until then, have a great week, everyone.